0: Welcome to Interwoven, a podcast from Plymouth Plantation. I'm Hilary Goodnow, and this is A Woman's World, The Female Experience in 17th Century Plymouth and Patuxent. Our society is reexamining the meaning of gender for a new generation. And I wanted to go back a few generations to find out what it meant to be a woman in the early 17th century. To find out, I joined a conversation with two of our fabulous gender historians and living history staffers, Carrie Helm, the Cultural Programs Manager for the Wampanoag Home Site, and Malka Benjamin, Associate Director for Interpretation and Training. We talked about everything from periods to pregnancy, comparing and contrasting the female experience in Wampanoag and English society with a few laughs and raised eyebrows along the way. A quick note before we start, be advised that the conversations you're about to hear may not be suitable for all ages of listeners, since they include information about sex, pregnancy, miscarriage, rape, and childbirth.
1: is Vasapiat. Hello, my name is Carrie and I am Vashpi Wampadog.
2: Hello, my name is Malka and I am the Associate Director for Interpretation and Training here at Plymouth Plantation.
0: So let's start out for our listeners and just give them a sense of, of what a woman's experience might have been, uh, a Wampanoag woman's experience and an English woman's experience here on this landscape about 400 years ago when, when the Mayflower was coming to Plymouth. Uh, so one of the,
2: the challenges when speaking with our guests is that we are, in addition to teaching straight up history of of the Wampanoags and the Pilgrims, and especially for me as someone who works as a role player in our uh, English village, is that we're embodying people who had a very different worldview and perspective and lived in a very different world, especially as a woman. Uh, Women in early 17th century uh, Plymouth Colony, these are, even though we're we're technically in America, these are English women. So whenever we're looking at these women, we have to look at what uh, are the sort of ideas about womanhood that they would be bringing with them from the old world or England in this case. Women in the 17th century lived, uh, at least for English women, lived much more circumscribed lives than women do today. Uh, They had very specific roles that they would have expected to fulfill from childhood. You would grow up, uh, hopefully you'll marry, and that you would be a housewife that you would sort of be in charge of that domestic realm. There was no expectation of having a profession or a career the same way a man in that time period would. That in England he might be a printer or a housewright or a blacksmith or you know baker uh, which was also a man's job. So very different and we're gonna talk a little bit about worldview
1: and some of those expectations as we dive more deeply into the topic. So when I discuss women's roles on the Wampanoag homestead, it's obviously much different. And for one, gender roles were never set in stone. You know, to be considered an adult in Wampanoag society, you had to be completely self-sufficient, which means you had to know how to do the work of both genders. Although women tended to do the work that had to do with giving life or sustaining it, and men doing the work that had to do with taking or altering life. Father would make sure his daughter knew how to get meat if she needed to. You know, mother would make sure her son knew how to process, gather, and fire clay to make pottery. Um, but a lot, a lot of visitors are surprised to hear about Wampanoag women in the 17th century and before that we were matriarchal and natural local. So the bloodline went through the mother. Children are born into their mother's clans, not their fathers. Women own the homes, grandmothers are head of household. Women could be Song which is a female chief, women could be Pawas, which is medicine person, but the very highest authority in every Wabina community was like like a tribal council that was comprised of the clan mothers. Those are the top elected grandmas from each family clan. They could overrule what the leader of the community says and replace them with someone else if they weren't, you know, acting in the best interest of the people. So different yeah it's really different
2: do you want to talk a little bit about some of the origin stories because in sort of looking at english and wampanoag culture the origin stories help explain the condition of the people uh, and are used to justify you know why things are the way they are in different societies so what are some of the
1: origin stories with wampanoag women um my favorite origin story comes from my Pocasset Wampanoag side. So our creation stories vary a little bit, you know, even from community, not only from nation to nation, but from community to community. And the Pocasset Wampanoag origin story says that the universe first created seven women, that, he dropped, that the universe dropped down onto the beach, and the women walked into the water and got impregnated by the sea foam. To make first people so it shows not only the high reverence for women but also our connection to the ocean how you know interwoven we were with the, with the ocean and as people
2: yeah the english origin story is very different in the early 17th century um, the english people are christian for the most part protestant so they're looking to the bible uh, for their origin stories and so they are still Uh, very much following the creation story in the book of Genesis. So man was created first, and then woman, or Eve, was created from the rib bone of Adam. Uh, And because uh, woman is created from man, that goes a long way towards explaining uh, the view of women in the 17th century, which was very much as the weaker vessel. Um, and th- and that sort of extends to everything, uh, views of women in their strength, mental capacities, uh, sort of all of those areas, the quote unquote weaker vessel. And you can see um, evidence of this even in our primary sources that are relating to Plymouth Colony. When they're writing about uh, Carver, who's the first governor of Plymouth Colony, dying in 1621, uh, using our modern calendar. He dies in April, and the comment uh, that is written is that uh, Bradford writes, William Bradford in his Journal of Plymouth Plantation, he says that uh, Mistress Carver, uh, being a weak woman, died some five or six weeks later so literally the reason that she died following her husband is because she is a weak woman so again that idea of the weaker vessel and there's no questioning of this world order because that is just the way god made it and so that is showing us some of the world view of the english colonists Uh, and worldview meaning how they saw the world uh, In their time and it's really important that as we look at these people uh, that we don't you know it's really tempting to judge them from our modern perspective but as historians and as educators uh, for us to look at these people and try to understand their actions and why they took them uh, based on how they saw the world in their time helps us to understand that time and it's something that we really try to help our visitors do as well. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about humoral doctrine um, just to uh, sort of carry on this point a little further. So humoral doctrine, for those of you listening, a little brief snapshot is the medicinal sort of worldview of the 17th century. They don't know about germs yet. There's no such thing as an infection or bacteria or viruses. The the, the medical idea of the time, which is dominant, goes actually all the way back to um, the Greeks and Galen. And there's an idea that you have four substances in your body, these are your four humors, and they exist in a different balance in each person. And if those humors come out of balance, That is why you get sick. Um, And the humors also explain a lot of other things like your personality, why everyone looks different, but that's the basic thing. And so Galen actually, uh, who was a Greek surgeon and philosopher who was still studied and followed in the early 1600s, He uh, says, he argues that the reason that women are inferior to men is because they could not use all the blood they concocted, blood being one of the four humors. This is also why women had periods because they had to get rid of their extra blood. Uh, Fun fact, did we warn you this was gonna be a PG-13 podcast? (laughs) Sorry, disclaimer, but in English, in the English worldview, women are simply not as valued as men. And we can see um, evidence for this. Uh, we, if we look at prayers that both women and men are uttering in the 17th century, um, you can see evidence of parents praying for male sons. Um, so for example, in 1665, uh, Viscountess Betty Mordent, she prayed, "'If it be thy blessed will, let it be a boy. And in fact, her baby was uh, a boy. And after it was born, uh, she said, uh, she wrote, to all the rest, thou hast added this more, the blessing of a son to increase my store. And by the way, that was her seventh child and they were all boys. So it's not like this was the first son after six daughters, this was her seventh son. Um, Another mid 17th century account uh, from Anne Harcourt, she kept a private diary, sort of for spiritual reasons, a spiritual diary recording her transgressions. And whenever she was pregnant, she would write pleading for the safe birth of a living child with all its parts and all its limbs and a son. So again, she's praying for a son. And we see also in 1645, Um, a man named Ralph Verney, who's writing um, about his sister. uh, And he says, she was brought to bed of a girl to all our griefs. And later in life, this sister commented um, upon hearing the news that her nephew's wife had given birth to a daughter. She wrote, I find our sex is not much valued in our age. So a lot of insight coming from her. and there is also this idea that women are suffering, uh, pain in childbirth, for example, is a direct result of Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. So women are still paying the price for that. So I've just been talking a bunch, sort of, about views of women, um, which are not so great uh, in the 17th century. But Perry,
1: so I can start with just a translation of the word. For women woman in Wampanoag, and it'll give you a little bit of an idea of how women were treated in Wampanoag culture. So a word for a man, you know, in contrast, washi means the one whose feet travel the earth because his work took him away from the home site and away from the family. Um, the word used to best describe women, a word for woman, matamwasas, literally translates to the one who has final say because women had a lot of power as far as decision-making. When a man and a woman get married, the man moves into the woman's community. Children are born into their mother's clan, not their father's. Clan is like your last name. Women could be squaw, which is a female chief. She could be Pawas, a medicine person. But the very highest authority in every Wampanoag community was a, like a council comprised of the clan mothers those are the top elected grandmas from each family clan they could overrule what the leader of the community says and replace them with someone else when they, you know if they weren't acting in the best interest of the people also i would say i don't think that when a woman was expecting that they necessarily would you know really pray in either direction for either sex but it w- would be important for a family to have at least one daughter because in your elderly years, it would be your daughter's family that you would be moving in with, and it would be her responsibility to be taking care of you, so.
2: Do you wanna, and you've
1: talked a little bit
2: about position in society as well. Um, And here again, the English view is so different. Um, Yes, you do have the example of Queen Elizabeth, um, but we'll talk, um, but even she faced challenges uh, as a woman ruler. But generally in English society, it's sort of the exact opposite of Wampanoag society. Women were expected to be submissive to their husbands. And note that I'm using the word submissive here, not subordinate. So there, there is a difference in meaning. Um, and Queen Elizabeth, you know, as, as a female ruler in the 16th century, really had to fight against this view. Um, there's that really famous speech that she gave at Tilbury, which I think an excerpt of it has been included in every Queen Elizabeth movie made to date, where she says, I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too. Um, So here, what you're seeing is she's taking the 17th century worldview about women, uh, and she is twisting it a little bit to to suit her ends and sort of to empower herself, but the fact that she even needed to do that, um, even though she was born uh, into this role of queenship, which means theoretically, according to the Christian worldview of the, the period, that God meant for her to be queen. So that is, I think, very interesting. Women in the time would have received their status from their father or husband. It's not something you just have by your own virtue. And it actually makes them very hard to track genealogically because if you don't know their maiden name, they pretty much will disappear from the records before their marriage. It's one of the challenges we have with a lot of the women in Plymouth Colony that we don't know where they came from in England because we don't know their maiden names. We can't track them down. One of the questions I get asked a lot uh, by guests is if um, as a 17th century woman, I want to vote. And unfortunately in the 17th century, there was no sort of expectation that a woman would have the right to vote. The idea is that the husband is the head of the family and as such his vote is representing the family. And if a woman were to vote as well as his wife, it it wouldn't be fair because it would be like him getting a double vote because of course they agree and they see things the same way. So one way to think about it, as one of our historians here, Richard Pickering, has said is that English women in the 17th century did have the freedom to think, but they also had the responsibility to suppress. Do you want to talk a little bit about coming of age in Wampanoag culture?
1: So there wasn't a certain age you were expected to know certain things, You know, when you hit puberty or if you're 18 or 21. To be considered an adult, In our culture, you have to be completely self-sufficient. You have to know how to do the work of both genders. So you could be 45 years old, and if you are not completely self-sufficient, the clan mothers would never allow you to be married or to start your own family. So it was really at a young girl's own pace. When she started showing interest in certain things, she'd be taught how to do them. You want to be treated like an adult, you start taking on adult responsibilities. But there was a ceremony that we have for our girls when they first started their first move the well, first time they had their period. We call it being on our moon. You might have heard me say that several times. You know, I can't cook today, I'm on my moon, or I can't go into the garden, I'm on my moon. It will take to or spiritual energy from the food we're growing or from the, um, the weapons. So we'd have to kind of segregate ourselves for that reason. Um, but when a, wo- a girl first started her moon her fir- for the first time, it would be one of the only times we would actually cut our hair short so we'd chop our hair off, and we wore long, peaked deerskin caps that would be covered in red ochre. Your hair had to grow back to the length of the cap to be eligible for marriage. So during that time is when your aunties and your grandmother and your mother would be, you know, kind of preparing you for life as a, a grown woman. Yeah, there's
2: nothing sort of, there's no corollary in English society at this time, at least that I have found sort of in terms of marking uh, when a girl starts having her period. Uh, speaking of periods,
1: uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about menstruation? Sure. So as far as medicinally, we definitely had different infusions and uh, used different plant compounds to uh, ease pain of menstruation. Cranberry, the whole plant was used um, as very much a woman's plant. Everyone knows the uh, effects it has for the urinary tract, but it's also uh, could ease menstrual cramps and pain. Um, and also, you know, as far as s- this sanitary side of being on your moon, uh women during that time, we would actually wear a breech cloth, like the men wear, where it would actually pass between our legs. We'd collect the fluff from the top of the cattail reed. we kind of bat it down and make it into like a pad that we wear and we change like a it's disposable same things that women would use for babies for diapers
2: yeah uh, in english culture they um it's not nearly so nice they would basically use what's called a menstrual rag um to and it's imagine a scrap of linen cloth that you kind of halfway stuff up um your private parts to staunch the flow during your period. And um, it actually has very sort of negative connotations uh, even in
1: in society but um before so I returned to, uh, to it during King Philip's War really yeah they're talking about something it was the uh, it was an account of destruction during King Philip's War it was like Stalin's doll or something and he referred to it being like a bloody menstruous cloth or something like that Oh. Very derogatory as like negative
2: connotations. Oh, that's interesting because there's um, a play from sixteen oh seven by Barnaby Barnes, great name, called The Devil's Charter. And in the play, the devil denounces Pope Alexander the Sixth by telling him, "Thy soul, foul beast, is like a menstruous cloth, polluted with unpardonable sins." Right. So you can definitely see the connotations with menstruation in English society there. Um, By the way, fun fact, 17th century terms for your period are your terms, your courses, and your flowers. I like
1: that.
2: Among other things. Um, One of the interesting questions uh, historians have when they're talking about 17th century women is how often they menstruated and at what age did they start menstruating? And a lot of historians have argued that they probably started menstruating at a older age than um, girls in America do today because of differences in nutrition. Um, and that women by and large were menstruating less frequently uh, in the 17th century than today because of differences uh, in nutrition in the amount of hard labor and that they were pregnant more often so they were and they were nursing more often. And there's, I've seen some scholars argue that uh, because of sort of the harshness of the life, women had irregular periods. Um, And yet I've also seen period sources where the women think they're pregnant because their period hasn't come. So clearly they're aware that their period is on a cycle and should be coming every X many weeks. And when it's not there, they take that as a clue they might be pregnant. Um, Samuel Pepys, really fun diarist in the mid-17th century, gets super excited because his wife hasn't had a period in seven weeks, so uh, they both think that she's pregnant. And fortunately, it turns out she's not, but they take that timing as a sign that she might be. I've
1: seen uh, a medical anthropologist studying uh, Native people in the area. They say that it was probably close to like maybe even sometimes 18 or 19 before women would start. The reason being is nowadays the horror moments that yeah. come into food basically. So.
2: Interesting. Yeah, we, um, I was talking about humoral theory earlier and sort of women as the weaker sex, and I just have to insert a little bit more humoral theory here just for funsies, uh, because there's fabulous reasons given, according to the ancient Greek philosophers, about why women menstruate, and I think you'll enjoy it. So bear with me. We're going to look at Hippocrates and Galen, two of our besties for today. So so the idea in the humoral doctrine is that you have some of your humors are hot, some of them are, are dry, some of them are cold, and some of them are wet. So Hippocrates, he theorizes that the reason that women menstruate is because they are inherently colder than men, um, which was sort of um, colder and wetter. This was pretty widely accepted amongst humoral theory people. Um, and he and so what Hippocrates says is that men sweat in order to remove the impurities from their blood but because women are colder generally than men in their humors, they can't sweat. Clearly, Hippocrates never met me, but just saying, he says, they can't sweat, so instead they menstruate and that's how they purify their blood. But, um, and then the corollary to this idea actually is that women who work out in the fields, who do a lot of hard labor have shorter periods uh, because of all the hot work and lots of exercise and therefore more sweating, wink, wink, um, they, they don't have as much excess blood to purify. Um, whereas women who are idle and eat lots of rich foods, they have longer periods because they have more excess blood. Now, Galen has a slightly different take on the matter. He says um, that menstruation, again, is how excess blood is removed from females' bodies. And he says, you see, females are inferior to males, so they cannot use all the blood that is concocted or created uh, from the food they digest. So he says, the extra blood has to go somewhere else. And according to Galen, he says, the extra blood goes to nourishing the baby in utero. And then after the baby is born, he believes that the blood uh, becomes milk. And in fact, in 1564, Thomas Reynaldi in The Birth of Mankind writes that quote, milk is none other than uh, milk is none other thing than blood made white. End of quote. <laughs> um, and also, of course, that is why women cannot conceive when they're nursing, because their their excess blood is otherwise occupied. So it can't you can't nurse and nourish a fetus at the same time. So Fun fact for you all, knowing about your humoral doctrine. Uh, when we talked a little bit already about some of the attitudes towards menstruation. Basically, not so good in the 17th century. However, I will say that very likely it was not a taboo subject to talk about like it is in modern society. And was it a taboo subject in Wampanoag society? No. Yeah, so much more open in the 17th century, I would women say. Women would
1: segregate themselves, go to the Moo Lodge. It wasn't because they were considered unclean or dirty. It was like I said, you know, we were had a different kind of connection with mm-hmm. ma- the monitor Walk or surrounding us at that time. So we would draw spiritual energy from things around us. So we would segregate ourselves. Uh, no work would be done. You know, there's accounts of women in the middle of tanning a hide, realizing it was, she was on her moons, just stopping what she was doing and retreating to the moon lodge. And this is, you know, they weren't even cooked. Their husbands, husbands would be responsible to make them food and bring it to them during that time, too.
2: So. Yeah, there is, I have to say, there's really almost no evidence of any kind of segregation in 17th century England. I mean, I've seen, like, one account of, a, I think, like, a priest who wouldn't give communion or something to a woman who was on her period. But uh, that's pretty much it. Um And I will say, just sort of in closing um, about this subject, that remember when we're talking for English people about early 17th century, this is still the time when astrology and alchemy are a part of society. And so there was this idea that menstrual blood did have power, Um, And you really see it played out kind of in the fringes. Uh, So it was seen as an aid to conceive a child, that um, the instructions were menstrual um, cloths washed in new milk, hung on a hedge. And that will somehow help you to conceive a child. Um, It was also seen as a hindrance to conception, um, that, uh, and I quote, menstrual blood applied to the natural place. Ugh. Uh, it was also thought to be useful for removing birthmarks (laughs) and um, was used apparently as an ingredient in love potions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly they were very efficacious. Uh, So now that we've talked all about fun things with menstruation, should we talk about marriage?
1: Yes. So. Go for it. um, Most marriages were, you know, man and a woman. You know, but that wasn't always the case, you know. There were, you know, thousands of same-sex unions on this continent before colonization and Christianity. It was true spirited people uh, who would also be married, you know, if they saw fit. But it would, be, it would start off with a private ceremony. Well, First, I'll say that marriages weren't typically arranged. You might see people of high status taking a spouse as like a political alliance, but then being able to marry again for love. So men um, or women of very high status could have more than one spouse. But if it was, say, a man and a woman, they decided that they loved each other, they wanted to be married, um, it would first be a ceremony that was performed uh, privately with just the... The bride and groom and the pawa, so a medicine person that would conduct the ceremony then it would be a very public ceremony after that with the whole clan or community or several communities it would be several days of singing dancing feasting Um, there would be gift giving except you would be gifting each other's parents you know not the bride and groom you'd see variety of different ceremonies that went along with the actual wedding ceremony you might see Uh, double pots, clay pots, where the bride and groom would drink out of the same pot. You might see hand binding and also sometimes being wrapped in a blanket.
2: Wow. All right. And so generally people are marrying by choice for love?
1: Yeah, in most cases.
2: Yeah. It's... um. Interesting, in the early 17th century in English culture, there seemed to be two main reasons for marrying. And when we're talking about the pilgrims and the colonists, we're really talking about kind of middle-class people. So these are not people who are going to be in a situation with an arranged marriage that you might see with a higher status English people that had land and titles that they were worried about keeping within families. So you certainly saw people marrying for love in, in England in the 17th century. That was definitely a thing. However, it was not it was not a given expectation like it is today in our world that you're going to meet someone and fall madly in love and live happily ever after. Um. There was a large segment of the population that married for much more utilitarian reasons. Uh, that that person, you know, you got along well with that other person, and that you you worked well together. There was sort of this popular conception of husband and wife as a pair of oxen, and you wanted them to be well matched uh, so that they would pull equally at the plow together and thus create a successful family unit. The idea being, if they were not well matched and did not work well together, they would they would go askew, and the family would not prosper and thrive, and I will make a note here that all marriages uh, in 17th century English society were man and woman, Um, and that was the expectation. Um, There was also uh, this Puritan idea that husband and wife were seen as spiritual helpmates to each other, sort of on that deeper level, Uh, and we already talked a little bit about the man being the head of the household, so I won't go into that too much here, but I'll talk a little bit about marriage ceremonies uh, the, uh, in England, of course, uh, the Church of England is the religion of choice. And in the Church of England, the marriage ceremony is a church service. Technically it is a civil matter, but there is a whole church service uh, in the Book of Common Prayer that would be performed in a church setting. Um, in Plymouth Colony, you have two groups of people. You have people who still adhere to the Church of England, uh, but there's no minister to marry them. So they are forced to follow, uh, or uh, what is Bradford describes as the laudable custom of the Low Countries. So the separatists, those are the religious dissidents living in Plymouth Colony, the ones who had been living in Holland in the city of Leiden, and then come um, come over. They don't see marriage as a religious um, matter. And that is because they will say, well, look at Jesus, you know, when he was at the wedding at Cana, he was a guest and he wasn't performing the marriage. So therefore, you don't need a minister to perform a marriage. It can just be a magistrate. It's simply a civil matter. So they very happily follow, again, what Bradford calls the laudable custom of the low countries. So in Plymouth Colony, you would have seen Governor Bradford performing a wedding. Isaac Allerton, one of his assistants, could have performed a wedding. And it's a much shorter affair. I mean, really probably five minutes is all it would take to recite the lines that you need to recite to be technically married. Um, and fun I'll do a fun plug here for future public events. Every year in our English Village, we do reenact several pilgrim weddings. So keep an eye on our program's calendar and come and participate. Sometimes we do a family that's a little more Church of England, sometimes we do a family that's a little bit more separatist So it's always a fun day to come and join us here at Plymouth Plantation to help live or relive history. Um, and there is a celebration also in English custom, it's often called a bride ale, which is a fun word for the sort of post-wedding party. And you would see feasting, um, and depending on the religious proclivity of the family, you might see some dancing, you might see singing. Gifts, if they were given, would have been to the couple. So a little bit different there. Now, I'm really curious, Carrie, Is there any, do you know anything about if premarital sex was a thing in Wampanoag society? Was it frowned upon, kind of looked the other way?
1: No, it wasn't frowned upon. It was something that
2: definitely happened. Uh, So it's interesting because in English society, premarital sex was super frowned upon, as in you weren't supposed to do it at all. But clearly it happened because if you look at the parish registers in England, you'll see a whole lot of babies baptized, you know, three, four, five months after their parents are married. So there is this idea that as long as the couple is married by the time the baby comes, it's okay because what the parish doesn't want is to be responsible for taking care of a bastard child born in the confines of their parish.
1: And the reason being is we didn't have uh, worry about unplanned pregnancies because we did practice birth control, you know, using plant compounds to stop from conceiving, especially jack-in-the-pulpit, which we would mm-hmm. boil into an infusion and drink while we're ovulating. Um, the only, as far as sex is concerned the only thing that was really frowned upon was um, adultery it was definitely looked down upon it was a a a great offense back then especially when there was children involved
2: Mm. yeah definitely adultery is an offense in the 17th century as well and it's one of the few reasons that you can use to uh, get a divorce uh, in that time period birth control for english folks is an interesting question um They seem to have a lot of, I mean, they're also using herbal medicine, and there's, I would say, over a hundred different plants in the time period that were known to have abortive qualities. And I'll just, you know, tansy, wormwood, mugwort, rue, just to name a few. But it seems that where with Wampanoag society, it's sort of birth control is preventative, um, in English society, it seems to be more reactionary. So you would take measures after you became present, pregnant uh, rather than beforehand to prevent it. Um, and well, you had, yeah. The
1: English had a different idea of when life actually started, right? Yeah. When, as far as gestation. Yeah, was, yeah. At conception is when we consider, you know, the to walk to enter the, 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 the body. But I know it was different for the English, right? Yeah, yeah. So
2: there's sort of two stages of baby development for the English. They also have a, a notion of sort of the soul entering the body, but that's not until about 45 days of gestation. And, um, and Lord knows how they were counting that. Um, but that's what they it's a sort of you it's sort of that's the average that you see um, and then there's also what's called the quickening, which is um, when the baby starts kicking and you can start feeling it moving inside, so that's somewhere between four and six months yeah. so some scholars um, debate whether English people actually saw the fetus as a living human before the quickening, in which case they wouldn't have seen it as an abortion they wouldn't have seen it as terminating a pregnancy versus just bringing on your courses or bringing on your period. So that will affect notions of birth control as well. Um, And what's interesting to me is that it's a little unclear, as I was saying, if they're seeing bringing on your courses as actively aborting a pregnancy because of that question of when it becomes sort of like a person versus a f- sort of inanimate thing nicholas culpepper writes an herbal and um in the 17th century and he has this whole list of herbs that he says can be used to stimulate menstruation and then he includes a note at the end he says give not any of these to any that is with child lest you turn murderers Um, So he seems to be aware of women possibly being aware of pregnancy and going to, you know, get herbs to bring on their periods, basically trying to get rid of the babe. So he's warning about that. Um, However, having an abortion was also seen as being displeasing in God's eyes. And then my other question is, you know, if they knew so much about herbs that had abortive qualities, um, why do we see so many examples of women in this period who would have really personally benefited from not carrying a child to term out of wedlock, um, even in the court, uh, who carried the child um, to term, you know, when they could have ended it. So how widely this, these were used, I don't really, don't really know. Um, but let's say you do get pregnant. Let's talk about pregnancy.
1: you wanna go first? Um, it was business as usual for the most part. Um, you know, there's one period source that talks about a native woman uh, going into the woods to collect deadfall, uh, being very pregnant, and coming back with deadfall in one arm and a baby in the other. So, I think that if there were uh, expected to be complications, you would have an older woman or someone with experience there with you. We had uh, different plant compounds we would use to aid in the pain of childbirth and also to maybe um, get contractions going if you were overdue, like blue cohosh. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was it, you know, there wasn't really a time where you would be laid out afterwards either, you know, it's business as usual after that.
2: Was there any idea about how conception happened?
1: Not nothing I know of. I think that we understood how it worked, but I mean, I don't know to what extent scientifically.
2: Well, I'll tell you the scientific rationale of 17th century English people is that female orgasm was necessary for conception, Um, which I think is interesting because we often think of 17th century English people as being very repressed sexually, and, and it was a very taboo subject, whereas that's not the case at all. And we can really thank the Victorians for all that repression. Um, it's also
1: something they say now, that you're more likely to conceive if the woman has an orgasm because the cervix sucks the semen up into your uterus.
2: Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I will say that that belief makes it in some ways nice to be a married woman in the 17th century because there is more of a focus on female pleasure um, during sex. Um And sex was actually seen as a really important way to bring a husband and wife closer together um, spiritually, which was seen as really pleasing in God's eyes and that it was sort of a husband's duty Um, as something as part of their marriage contract to to be having sex with his wife. But there's also an absolutely horrible corollary to this idea of orgasm being necessary to conceive. And that is when there is a man accused of raping a woman in the courts, um, if the woman subsequently becomes pregnant, Uh, he is not guilty of rape because she is pregnant. So clearly she had an orgasm, which must mean she enjoyed it. So it wasn't rape, um, which is really hard uh, to talk about as a modern woman and really painful. Um, Looking in the 17th century, um, signs of how do you know if you're pregnant? Um, And we talked about earlier, was missing a period a sign that you were pregnant? And I think for some women seems to have been, and for some women it wasn't. But um, there is one 17th century source, source that says, if the woman falls a vomiting and spitting, distastes her meat, groweth dull, careless, and qualmish, and longeth after strange things. She must be pregnant. Um, also, fun pregnancy test in the 17th century. And if any of you listeners are pregnant and want to try this at home, please tell me if it works. But take um, a brass Pin has to be brass and put it in a cup of your pea. And if red spots form on the pin, then you are pregnant. Can't say as I've tried this myself, but I'm really curious uh, if it actually works. Um, so, and there's all these sort of instructions in the 17th century about what women should or shouldn't do when they're pregnant, but unless you're super rich, there's not really any practical way Um, you can follow them. Like one guy says they should avoid the noise of guns or great bells, (laughs) because that might upset them. Or they should avoid sadness and be careful of anxiety. And they should abstain from all hard labors. I'm like, well, that's not possible if you're a working woman in the 17th century. Um, Oh man, here we go. Here's a great one from the expert midwife. Let them take heed of cold and sharp winds great heat, anger, perturbations of the mind, fears and terrors, immoderate Venus, and all intemperance of eating and drinking. And you will have a successful pregnancy. <laughs> um, I could go on. There's, there's tons of these actually. Also, immoderate joy and immoderate sorrow could be dangerous to your pregnancy. Um, And there were really interesting views on sex during pregnancy as well in the 17th century. I warned you, this was gonna be PG-13. So the medical opinion at the time was that you should limit sex during pregnancy, specifically um, during the first four months, that you really should have no sex, uh, quote, for fear of shaking the child and bringing down her courses. Um, So again, this idea of bringing down your courses as also euphemism for miscarriage, potentially. Um, Also, no sex during months number six and eight. Didn't say anything about month number five though, so you might be okay then. Um, but a hearty yes to sex during months seven and nine of your pregnancy. Um, This was thought to help hasten the delivery, and in fact, lots of sex during your last month of pregnancy was considered really good, not just to hasten your delivery, but also was considered a good way for the father to put his influence on the child, which, of course, was his duty to do. It's
1: interesting, month seven, but not eight. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I know uh, a lot
1: of the 17th century
2: stuff doesn't really um, make sense. So I will say there is, when you read the sources, this palpable fear of miscarriage, which, I mean, even today, miscarriages happen a lot in our culture. We just don't talk about them. Um, and they were definitely happening a lot in the 17th century. Um, in Gerard, um, Gerard's Herbal, which is another 17th century herbal from 1636, he writes about sage um, as the holy herb, because women with child, if they be like to come before their time, and are troubled with abortments, i.e. you know, miscarriages, do eat thereof to their great good, for it closeth the matrix, that's 17th century ease for your womb or uterus, and maketh them fruitful, it retaineth the child and give it it, giveth it life. So they're, again, trying to use herbal medicine to maintain the pregnancy. Um, but I would say on average, most 17th century women are pregnant uh, or nursing for a much larger percentage of their lives than modern at least modern American. How women. Long
1: um,
2: that's a really good question. It's hard to see in the sources, but it looks like from anywhere from like a year to a year and a half or so.
1: What about with Wampanoag Three years? Really? Yeah, it's the only bill you got your entire life helps prevent you from being pregnant. We- any, that's not a surefire thing. I can attest to that. But, <laughs> uh, it helps prevent you from getting pregnant, but the main reason we are trying to prevent pregnancy too in that time is we believe the first three years in a child's life is the most important time in their spiritual development. So we like to space them out. So breastfeeding helps that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, if milk fails, uh, we would actually make like formula basically with crushed ground nuts and mix in like animal fat.
2: Huh. Yeah, I mean, because there was definitely midwives, um, excuse me, not midwives, uh, wet nurses in the yes. 17th century, but there's all these great advice about sort of like the hair color and the qualities of, in a good wet nurse that you should use, but that was really for wealthier folks than, than common people. Yeah,
1: uh, we would do that too. Uh, we would nurse each other's babies simply out of convenience, really.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about childbirth sort of for Wampanoag women?
1: Um, like I said, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal. Only yeah. if there was a, expected to be difficulties. Like if the baby was, like, breech, you would mm-hmm. find a woman in the community, probably a clan mother, an older woman who had experience and, you know, the, uh, turning the baby, you know, repositioning the baby, or uh, if there was multiple births they might be attended to by older women in the community. But uh, for the most part, you know, it was something that, you know, women would do probably either in their home if it was winter or out in the woods was common too. Interesting.
2: Were there like songs or ceremonies that went along with it? Yes. Bit?
1: Yeah, There's definitely songs and ceremonies that are done uh, during childbirth, leading up to, or especially right after the baby is born.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. In the, um, in English, in the, in the sort of English side of things, labor is often called a travail. So the woman is in her travail. And you also hear the woman in the straw is sort of the reference of, like the woman is giving birth, the woman in the straw. Um, I would say in the 17th century, there was a lot of fear surrounding childbirth in modern American society today, I think. You know, you hear someone's pregnant and the automatic reaction is, oh, that's so exciting, congratulations, Mazal Tov, you know, from whatever your culture is from. Uh, In the 17th century, I think women approached childbirth with much more fear and trepidation. Uh, there was, um, Rightly so. yeah, I mean, a lot of women died in childbirth uh, in England and a lot of, uh, or the baby died or both. Um, and you'll see that it's interesting because men in, you know, the written records that we have, they tend to pray to prevent the loss of the child or the mother. Women seem more often to be praying to prevent the pain of childbirth. Um, because there don't seem to be the same use of herbs as you were saying to um, sort of cut the pain. There's herbs that are used to quicken the birth. Um, you know, things—the idea of putting sweet-smelling herbs under your, um, you know, crotch to draw the baby down, of eating slippery foods like um, you know chicken broth or poached eggs to help the baby slip out. But you don't really see things against pain. Um, there's a drink called a coddle, you know, which is used to help the baby slip out. But you, um, I mean, you see women writing about, like, um, the Countess of Bridgewater, Elizabeth Egerton. She writes about, quote, the great torture of childbirth. Um, you see, uh, in the mid-17th century, this, uh, I mentioned to her, Eliz- um, Viscount Elizabeth Morden earlier, uh, she wrote a prayer of thanksgiving after the birth of her son, John, and she prayed... Uh, for my safe deliverance from the pain and peril of childbirth. Um, And there's also um, a beautiful quote from a Puritan uh, in 1640, Robert Woodford. And he writes, Lord, look upon my dear wife in her present condition, now great with child. Lord, give her a gracious delivery. Give her strength to bring forth, preserve her life give the child right shape and form continue her life of it and of the rest make them instruments of thy glory and vessels of mercy so praying for the safe deliverance of his wife and you'll also see this constantly praying for the baby to be born with all its parts you know so not missing any toes fingers not being deformed Um, and I'll tell you that women would give birth in the home. So hospitals in the 17th century are not where, um, they're where people who have mental illness go. Uh, And so childbirth is in the home and it is a totally women's domain. So like you were saying, Carrie, the men are sent out of the house, and there's sort of this real flip in sort of household roles where all of a sudden the man is at the beck and call kind of of his wife, and he has to go fetch the foods she wants and fetch her friends that she wants to be around her. So it kind of turns everything upside down. He's not really welcomed in the birthing room, which uh, would have been kept dark. Um, They wanted the door closed, the windows closed. They thought that light could distract the mind of the woman in labor. God forbid she's not focusing on the pain she's experiencing, but also um, because they, they write that uh, when they're talking about cold air, and this is a quote, they say, uh, it is an enemy to the spermatical parts, and therefore the doors and windows of her chamber in any wise are kept close shut. Um, they would have kept the birthing chamber warm, and usually there's a white linen sheet that's used to cover the bed during childbirth. Um, Though I will say there was a separatist, um, John Kane, who associated that white sheet um, as sort of a superstitious kind of custom and holdover. Midwives are something we get asked a lot about um, in the English village, and they were very common in England to assist with childbirth. Um, They were supposedly licensed by the Church of England. They were very respected members of their community. Also very interesting, they were able to often cross social boundaries because they were tending to poor women and rich women. Um, They're also sometimes ridiculed as quote, mother midnight or quote, old mother grope. That's my favorite one. Um, And they would usually bring equipment with them sponge, knife, a stool or a chair, uh, oil of lilies, which was um, warmed up and then used to anoint the womb of the woman in labor and the hands of the midwife. Um, Midwives would keep their nails short. They would also remove all their rings and bracelets. That was a superstition um, that you, and also of the woman in labor, that you remove those things as a way to remove all the bindings again, so the baby slips out easier. Um, But there's a big question was there a midwife in Plymouth Colony in the 1620s? Later on, Bridget Fuller, the wife of Samuel Fuller is referred to as a midwife, but we don't know if she uh, takes up that practice out of necessity or if she had those skills when she arrived. So it's one of the big unknowns uh, that we have. Um, And, you know, there are certainly midwives later in the 17th century in the colony there is a great reference in 1677, Samuel C., uh, Sewell, who's a merchant in Boston, he writes about carrying the midwife's birthing stool back to her house for her after the midwife delivered his wife of a child. And the, I just want to note the use of a birthing stool because today women usually give like, you know, the common position is you're like you're in bed and you give birth in the hospital. In the 17th century, in England, women almost never gave birth lying down. They were um, sometimes sitting on a birthing stool, uh, sitting in someone else's lap, standing, being supported by assistance, sitting in a chair, leaning against something, kneeling, uh, being held up by the arms but not often lying down. Now Kerry was saying how it was sort of business as usual afterwards uh, but if the family could afford it, a woman expected to have a a lying-in period where she would stay in the birthing room um, and do no work and sometimes it might be a few days, sometimes it might be up to a month. Probably in Plymouth Colony, it was not a month, just my guess, based on the amount of work that had to get done.
1: Right. But also, laying down on your back wasn't something that we would do either. Squatting was the most natural Mm. and common position for women to give birth. And, you know, it's the best way, you know, to do it even nowadays. The reason why we lay down on our back is because it's easier for the doctor, you know, not for us or for the baby. Hmm. Interesting. Take a special stool, though. (laughs) <laughs> no special stool oh, yeah, yeah. tree or something
2: like I, that. I like that. Women take note. Do what's best for you, not the doctor. so we wanna close um by talking about women in old age? And yeah. and I'll just say not good if you're an English woman. You don't have much to look forward to. But it's a lot better. So let's end with something happy. <laughs>
1: Uh, um, for like I said, grandmothers ahead of household, so women would own the homes. When you could no longer find for that for yourself, you'd move in with your daughter or maybe even granddaughter's family at that point in time. Um, women were highly respected. Um, ultimate thing for a, a woman would be to become a clan mother. You know, they held the most power, not just in the family but in the community too. Uh, but everyone was taken care of, you know, people would grow a surplus of food, um, so if you didn't have a daughter, um, every family was actually responsible to give a portion of their yield to the leader of the community to be redistributed to people who couldn't find for themselves, like the elderly or handicapped. Or-
2: How do you become a clan mother?
1: It's a, like an elected position. It's like the top elected grandmothers from each family clan. So if you think about your family, you know, there's usually a dominant (laughs) woman, older matriarch of the Mm -hmm. family. So that's that's what they're there for. Women are considered to be more level-headed, you know, as far as decision-making goes. Um, So they would be the representative for the family which is a system we still follow, you know, to this day. You know, we're a sovereign nation, so we have a tribal government that works on a government-to-government platform with the U.S. federal government, but we also have our traditional leaders, our chief, or sachem, our powwows, our medicine people, and our clan mothers, so.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges you both face representing the lives of 17th century English and Wampanoag women to modern 21st century audiences?
2: Um, I would say the, the the biggest challenge personally is that you know I am I'm, I'm a modern person I'm a feminist I believe fully in women as being equal to men and having the same rights and abilities as men and I have to uh, really to accurately represent. A woman in the 17th century, I can't say those things. I have to express the views of people in that period. And that can be a challenge, you know, whether um, you're talking to uh, a guest who is perhaps a young woman from a culture that doesn't see women uh, as equal to men, and, and you don't want to necessarily reinforce the other things she's being taught. Um, though I have, I have found personally the biggest challenge for me is when um and this doesn't happen often but it has happened enough that um I've noted it every now and then you'll get um you know an older gentleman who will come through and he'll sort of say see wifey I that's why I should be the head of the house and he and it's just you know and and that that really makes me cringe
1: for me I think uh, the experience on the home site of you know, saying all these wonderful things of how respected women are, who, and, and were. You know, what positions of power we could hold. Um, sometimes it invites um, other women, usually sometimes, or people to kind of like trash the men. You know, you know, like native men were less than or not equal to. And um, you know, for us, you know, for most women, you know, uh, feminism or trying to equal rights is something that women have been fighting for and pushing for over time, like these little battles that have been building up. Uh, but for us, you know, it's a total opposite. You know, we've never had to fight for that. So, you know, for our men, you know, no one in the history of, of men, I don't think have been, you know, kind of dehumanized and had the masculinity taken away from them like native men have on this continent. So I think for us, it's a fight together, you mm-hmm. know, equal rights and recognition. So uh, we very much love and respect our Native men and they've always supported us um, uh, as far as being matriarchal and matrilineal. So um, it it gets, it gets sticky sometimes where, you know, visitors or or people outside of the museum will will say, you know, yeah, you tell them men are trash, men are this or that, and it's just not the case. You know, it's never to, uh, to bash the men. You know, they're very much, um, working towards you know, being you know, uh, happy and in a good place and feeling respected just like
2: women, so. Yeah, and I mean, I'll say also as, as a role player, there is these inherent challenges of portraying a female from the 17th century because the history at the time was written by the men. Um, we, have nof- we have, believe it or not, primary sources written uh, in the words of men in the colony, Edward Winslow, William Bradford, uh, just to name a couple. We have nothing from the women. Uh, We have no idea what it was like for them. We don't even know some of their first names. There is a woman uh, who comes on the Mayflower, um, Mary Chilton. She's orphaned at the age of 13. She ends up marrying John Winslow. They go on to have a bunch of children. There's a story that she was the first one to step on Plymouth Rock, which I put no credence to. But, um, she was orphaned. Her parents came with her. Her father was James Chilton. We don't know her mother's first name. She's just Mrs. Chilton because when William Bradford, 30 years later, was writing his passenger list, he couldn't remember her first name. And when she was um, sort of banished from her church uh, parish in Sandwich, uh, they just wrote Mrs. Chilton in the parish records. So we've she's been lost to history uh, because we don't know her, her first name, her given name. And so, you know, for so long, the Pilgrim story has focused on the men and what the men did and their contributions. And the women were really an afterthought. And it's been really exciting in the last few years to see historians in the United States and also in England, professional historians, lay historians working to try to bring the voices and stories of these women to light. Um, whether that is through genealogical research or through really looking at the world in which they lived and how they potentially could have experienced uh, colonial New England. So it's, it's been really gratifying to be a part of that uh, work and bringing that education to, our, to the public.
0: Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, Join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow, and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Prevedini. Thanks for listening.